All right, let's pray, shall we? Our gracious God and our Father, we desire for our time uh, this evening to be useful to all of us to learn uh, what you would have us to learn. And so we pray for uh, the work of your Holy Spirit in our hearts and for the Word of God. And we pray especially that you would correct us where we are wrong in our thinking, that you would underline uh, those things that are right in our thinking, and that you would cause us to be thinking most especially of the Lord Jesus Christ and our faith in him. We desire these things, Father, because uh, we truly want to be your children and we want to walk in obedience. But we desire also to be a help to others around us. You have called us to love our neighbor, and sometimes that means answering their questions and helping them even as we pray for them and making sure that we're doing our part to help them in their understanding. But what we desire most of all is that all these things would, would cause you to be glorified, that would cause others to think more highly of you than ourselves. We pray that even this evening, uh, that you would be the one exalted in our minds and our hearts, even as you have been in our singing, and that as we learn tonight, that you would cause these things to encourage us to worship you all the more. And so lead us away from ourselves. Lead us to Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so tonight we're going to talk about the significance of knowledge for the Christian faith. We've entitled this Accepting. And the reason for that is because it's one of the words that our confession of faith uses to describe what faith is. It says that faith is principally accepting, receiving, and resting in Christ, our Savior. Uh, you see that language in the confession in uh, chapter 15, 14, 2. The principal acts of saving faith are accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. And so that's what we're talking about this evening. What does it mean <clears throat> to accept certain things being true? And where we begin is to acknowledge the fact that faith understands. There's an element to true saving faith in Christ uh, that assumes that, that we understand. Uh, the reformers had fancy words to describe this. Uh, they used Latin terms like notitia, um, a, sens a census, a cognitio. These are Latin words that uh, refer to assent or cognition, understanding. And one word that could capture it is accepting. Accepting can mean other things too. But really, just to, to boil it down, what we're saying is that faith is having saving knowledge, that knowledge is essential to having faith in Christ. And one of the ways to think upon this is to understand that faith is a little bit different from how some people think about faith, especially people in the world, people who are not Christians and don't have the Bible to help them to understand what faith is. And, and they think of faith as something like where you're taking a bold risk, where you have no idea how it's going to turn out. And so you just go for it and you risk everything. A lot of people think that's what faith is. And that is not what the Bible teaches about faith. The Bible teaches us that there are certain things that we know that we have confidence in the thing that we're trusting in, or better yet, the person that we're trusting in. Uh, John Murray said, faith cannot begin in a vacuum of knowledge. There has to be something there. So 
a blind, or a faith assumes something, and we could put it this way, that faith is not a blind conjecture. Uh, the way Sinclair Ferguson put it is this way, that faith is not a leap into the dark, it is a step into the light. That faith is not a leap into the dark, it is a step into the light. Now, when I say a leap into the dark, is there anybody here who's not a pastor who can give me a name associated with that phrase, a leap into the dark? Okay, anybody here who's a pastor? Oh, no. Better, okay, go for it. Mike, right? Who? Soren Kierkegaard. Very good. Very good. So I have had a friend. Uh, I was working down in Tennessee, and I stayed with a friend, and he had dogs and cats. He named all of his dogs after theologians, and his cats he named after heretics. <laughs> now, when I was a young pastor, very unwise, I said that line, and then I said, of course, that is a practice we should all commend. Now, that was a very foolish thing to say. Unbeknownst to me, there were cat lovers in my congregation. After the benediction, I'm at the back of the church just minding my own business, and here come the cat lovers with the claws. It was another episode when I very unwisely said, well, there's more than one way to skin a cat. Then I said, my favorite saying. And, uh, and there they came again. And I deserved it that time because I was being provocative. So Kierkegaard is a name we associate with this phrase, a leap into the dark. Well, my friend, uh, Robert, was washing dishes. And one day uh, at night, he looks. It's getting kind of dark outside this evening. And he looks out, and here's the cat, Kierkegaard, near the trees. And he said, and he took a leap into the dark, and I never saw him again. So, anyway, I thought it was a good story, but, um, but that's not what faith is. Faith is not taking a, a, a blind chance. That's not what the Bible tells us. There are things that we know. Robert Lethem, uh, who used to be an OPC minister, he's now um, in, in England, and he puts it this way, God does not expect us to be credulous, and our faith does not rest on flimsy foundations. We are never asked to believe where there are no reasons for it. And God gives us lots of reasons to trust him. And one of the examples that Kierkegaard gave was he, he said that the God told Abraham, go and sacrifice your son. And what he was being asked to do was against reason. That just, that's what faith does. It just takes this risk, this, this blind leap into the dark that Abraham knew nothing. Well, that's not true. Abraham had known God for two decades. He had a relationship with God. God had made promises to him and made good in those promises. He knew what he was doing. He knew the one that had made this promise. And the book of Hebrews tells us that he just simply assumed that God would raise Isaac from the dead. He knew what this God could do. It was not a blind leap into the dark. And so this is why when we talk about faith and a faith originates in the heart, it must involve the mind. It must involve our thinking and our understanding, our cognition, all these these words. A Christian must understand what is necessary for salvation, which could be as simple as this, knowing who Christ is and knowing what he has done for me. Now, that's put in the context, as we saw this morning, that I can appreciate why I need Christ, namely because I understand my sin. I stand in need of his work. And Calvin puts it this way. Calvin was concerned about two extremes on this very issue, that there are some people that can understate the significance of knowledge, but people can overstate knowledge too. We'll talk about that in a second. But he put it this way. He said, it is the height of absurdity to label ignorance 
tempered by humility as faith. To, to take ignorance and simply temper it with humility, to call that faith, he says, that's absurd. It's like putting lipstick on a pig and saying it's beautiful. It's still a pig. It's still ignorance. And he says, that is not faith. In fact, the way that he liked to talk about faith was like this. Faith is a firm and certain knowledge of God's benevolence towards us. Benevolence, children, means goodness, that he's good to us, that he promises to be good. Founded upon the truth of the freely given promise in Christ, both revealed to our minds and sealed upon our hearts through the Holy Spirit. So we begin with this assumption that our faith involves knowledge. There's things that we, that we need to know. Now, as I said, you can go badly in two extremes. You can, you can overstate this. You can overestimate the knowledge of the faith and get into this idea that knowledge needs to comprehend all the things to be believed, that you need to be a superhero in terms of theology before you can really have the knowledge we're talking about. Or you can go the other extreme and underestimate the knowledge of the faith. That knowledge is kind of like just simply nearly uh, taking notice of a few things that need to be believed. And so both those extremes are wrong. There's some things that we need to believe. You have to know something. So for many years, I, I taught basketball and uh, for, for young children. And uh, this one year, I had this, this boy his family, I think, were relatively new to the country. He had never played basketball in his life. And when I mean he knew nothing, he knew nothing about basketball. And the very first practice made this very, very obvious. And I knew that I would have to, to earn my pay, which was nothing. But anyway. <laughs> and so we had a few practices, and I had to talk to him about, you can't move with the ball. You have to dribble the ball. And you do it like this. And I knew I had not coached him well enough when the very first game at the very beginning, you have the, you have the jump, you know, the tip-off between the two teams. And so when the referee puts the ball like this between the two players, this player ran and he grabbed the ball, went down the court to, 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 to do a layup. And of course, he's not dribbling. He just grabs the ball and just runs. It's like, this is not football. <laughs> so it's bad. Of course, the, the, you know, the referee blows the whistle. Everything had to stop. And he just needed more knowledge to be able to play basketball. But you get the impression from some people that before you can really play basketball and enjoy it, you need to know how to do the Euro step. You need to know all the intricacies of emotion offense and all these things, that you need to be near ready to be in the NBA or ready for the Olympics or something like that. That's, well, that's extreme. You can learn to play basketball very, very soon with just a few fundamental skills learning how to pass the ball, which they you know, don't do in the NBA anymore, play defense or anything. Anyway, um, March Madness is so much better. But you don't need to have all these skills to play basketball. How much do you need to know to play basketball? It's not a lot. Now, it's another thing to become expert, to become good at it, but how much do you need to know? You can learn this very, very soon and be a young person. And so both of those extremes are, are apparent. It's, or it's like this example. Think of... At the very first day of track practice, a young man shows up and they do some warm up. They run a, so, a mile around the track. And afterwards, he says to the coach, Wow, that was so much. Why are we doing this? Are we going to run every day? Uh, this is crazy. You people just like to run. And the coach says, This is track. That's what we do. We run. Well, you guys are absurd about this. This is too much. And it walks away. Well, you think, you don't know enough about what track is. Track actually involves running. 
But do you have to train so that you can do a triathlon to enjoy running? Now, personally, I don't think anybody enjoys running. When I see people run, none of them are smiling. <laughs> they're doing it only for the image. They say it's for their health. I don't believe them. I think they're lying, but anyway. <laughs> and so you're saying, okay, so what, what, are we, what are we talking about? And I'll give you an answer. I give this to some of the students at Westminster. I said, okay, this is a take-home exam, and it, means, it does not mean that you can just write forever. So I don't want pages and pages and pages. That's not going to help you, you know. It's the Gentiles who think they're heard for their many words. I'm not a Gentile. You're not a Gentile. Don't give me many words. I said, but don't be too brief either. And so inevitably, one of the students says, well, how much will we write? I said, just enough. <laughs> just enough. That's all I ask. It's very simple. Just enough. So you're asking, well, what is just enough? Well, if you have a Blue Trinity hymnal, turn to the very beginning to Roman numeral page 12. Roman numeral page 12. This is not the red Trinity hymnal where the Apostles' Creed is at the back. This is the old blue. It's right up front. Roman numeral page 12. And maybe you didn't know this, what's there. But there you're looking at the words that are over 1,700 years old. Actually predate that in the older Roman creed, the Roman symbol, which came about in the second century. It was a baptismal formula. So when somebody got baptized, words like this, and they would say, this is what I believe, and they'd be baptized. This is what our brothers and sisters in Christ have been confessing for years. In many of your churches, we confess these words in church very often. And we have said in the church, this is a good place to begin. If you can read this paragraph and say those first two words sincerely, I believe, then we're off to a good start. You can learn more about what these words mean. You can study them and understand some of the debates around them. But the church has agreed that these propositions represent what we would call the Christian faith. These are the things that you and I need to know. We don't have to know them like the NBA or the going to the Olympics, be a power theologian. And, but we need to know these things and have a relative working knowledge of them to believe that the God is the one who made us that he made all things for his glory. We have to believe that Christ is our redeemer, that through his life and his death and his resurrection that he has purchased that redemption that we have for us. That's why at the end of the creed it says, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. I believe in that because of Christ. We confess the Holy Spirit here. We believe in life eternal. We believe in the church. These are the things that we confess. And so if you ask me, what do I need to believe? I would say it's, it's here. This is what we need to believe. But it's not just what we believe. We talked about this this morning as adults, that faith is always ultimately about a person. It's not just in, in the what or the, the exer or the faith that we confess. It's, it's also the faith that we exercise towards Christ. And the Bible talks about this in 1 Peter 1. It talks about you do not see him, yet you love him and you believe in him. First uh, John 2 talks about this, how we, how we love him, and it's evident in our obedience to him. Ephesians 1.17 talks about our growing to know him more and more. It's about knowing Christ, knowing a person. And that's why when we come back to Abraham, that Abraham knew God. He knew him as a person. It's important to know that person. So let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. 
Uh, so I met Carol, my wife, at Gordon-Conwell in the previous century. We'll just leave it right there. And we became attached. Uh, we enjoyed each other's company, and uh, we dated, we got serious, and I eventually proposed to her, and she said yes, and I wasn't prepared for that. I kind of surprised, because she seemed like a really intelligent young lady, but, but she did say yes, but it wasn't soon after that that she made a confession to me, and she said, I have never cooked a meal. Now, this was, um, to me, against the coat. I, I thought this was an egregious wrong, uh, that she waited until after I, I proposed to reveal to me uh, this unsettling truth that she had never cooked a meal. Because, see, in my world, it was very simple. It's God, food, and then family. Now, I have matured since then and, and changed those priorities. It's now God, Asian food, then Italian food, and then family. But for her to tell me this, I said, well, I suppose you also went to prison and decided you forgot to tell me that too. You know, how could you forget to tell me these things? I thought I knew you. And now here's what's interesting, and I'm just, I'm just kidding, but she was telling the truth. She had never cooked a meal. And I, I really was very upset about it because I'm a foodie, but I mean, God cares about food, okay? Do we need to talk about this really right now? Anyway, I'm probably having too much fun, I'm sorry. But here's what's interesting. We'd been married like 20, 25 years. And I said to Carol, you know what's interesting is that when we took those vows that we'd be faithful to each other the rest of our, our days, I knew I was taking a solid vow because I knew you and I knew I could trust you. I knew more than just I loved you. I, I knew who you were. But now I look back, it, it scares me how little I knew you. But I knew enough. I knew enough. There are people here in this room who have been walking with Christ for over 50 years. They know him better today than when they first confessed him. But they knew enough. We don't need to have all comprehensive knowledge. Now, in the OPC, we have high expectations as we look at some of these, these vows we expect people to take. And it's incredible what I have heard a 14-year-old or even younger confess about the gospel, something I could not have confessed with that kind of eloquence when I was 20, maybe 25 years old. And I'm being dead serious when I say that, because I was very new to the faith, the Reformed faith. But we don't need to know everything. And it's amazing to me, in terms of the, the Christian faith, that we have this, this knowledge that's available to us, and this knowledge is ultimately about having confidence in the person who's speaking to us that the knowledge that you and I are acquired is given to us by God, and we have confidence in him that he's telling us the truth because we know him. And so this is crucial for us as we understand what it means to, to have knowledge for the Christian faith. It's ultimately just not about these things that we confess. It's about the person who's given to us these things and the one who's speaking to us, namely the true and the living God, the God who cannot lie, the God who does not change, and he tells us the truth in his Bible, that's why we read our Bible, to find out what's true and to have him speak to us in the Bible of these things that are true, these things that we believe. But they're also these things that we can know because God has made us this way with these minds that he has opened up to, uh, opened up to his truth by the Holy Spirit so that we can truly latch on to these things and we can know them and we can grow in them and know them more and more and more. 
And so this is why it's so important to take seriously how the Bible says, yes, it's true that you have to confess these things to uh, understand Christ and to be considered a Christian, one who confesses who Christ is and what he's done for me as a sinner and how all my confidence is in him. But here's the amazing thing, that when you become a Christian, you grow in your knowledge and that your mind expands and it deepens. And the things that you confessed is true, now you see even how more important they are and how, how true they are. And this is a wonderful thing, how the scripture helps us in this way and to know that our mind is constantly being renewed. It's constantly being developed and helped. So here's what's interesting. In the book of Romans, you have these 11 chapters, the first 11 chapters, where, where Paul basically unfolds the gospel, the, the logic of the gospel. It begins in chapter 12. And he begins to kind of, as it were, tease out the, the practical aspects of what this gospel means. Where does he begin? In chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And he says, it's really important that you understand it's important not to be conformed to this world, but rather to be transformed in the renewal of your mind. Isn't this interesting? This is where he begins. That you need to pay attention to what you know and to be transformed by the word of God and let your mind be renewed. In Colossians 3.10, Paul puts it this way, put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. It doesn't mean that we're getting rid of wrong knowledge. It means our knowledge is being improved. And sometimes you do discover things where, wow, I didn't think of that as well as I should have before. And that's how you mature. That's how you grow as a Christian. Now, how does this happen? It happens by a scripture by being transformed by the word of God. Paul says in Ephesians 4, 17, you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking to be made new in the attitude of your minds. And what Paul is saying there as Christians, there are old attitudes that will no longer do. There's ways in which you and I used to think, and we have to think differently now as a Christian. There are words that we used to use as a non-Christian. We don't use those words any longer. There's all sorts of things that, that need to be refurbished and, and renewed and, and changed. And Paul is telling us this, it involves the mind. It constantly needs tuning. It's the same with your car. You just don't take the car to the mechanic when something's wrong. You have to pay attention to changing the oil and the other fluids. You have to constantly be tuning it. In the old days, we had carburetors, and you had to adjust them. We constantly had to be tuning. We don't do that anymore because computers run everything, which means you and I can't do anything on our cars any longer. Machines have to be retooled. There's all kinds of things in life that they constantly have to be adjusted. And so is the case with the Christian mind, uh, that we need to understand that if we're going to combat this world, that we're going to resist temptations, many times it's going to come down to how you're thinking. But this is the very thing he's doing in our faith. He's growing us in our understanding, in our knowledge of the faith. That's the way Peter begins in 2 Peter 1-2. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the same letter ends on the same note. He says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's both these things. Growing in my understanding of who Christ is, but also growing in my ability to imitate him and to be conformed to him in holiness. It's both these things. But the last thing I want to emphasize this evening is not just having our minds renewed, but our minds reassured. 
that one of the things we're growing in is not just the knowledge, but we're growing in our certainty. This was something that was very important to the reformer John Calvin. He said, faith's understanding is more a matter of certainty than comprehension. And what he was saying is that the goal is not to try to understand everything. The goal is to take what you have and to make sure you understand that and to be solid in it. This is why you will meet some people who have not had a lot of education, but because they have applied themselves to the things of the Christian faith are wiser than somebody who's read all kinds of books. The wisest person I ever knew was my grandpa Troxel, who was a farmer. Never went past the eighth grade. But absolutely every piece of knowledge he had was laid at the cross and transformed by scripture. He was the most holy man I ever knew. Absolutely consistent. It wasn't about knowledge, it was about wisdom. That's what the Bible always says. What do you have? Are you harnessing it for the sake of Christ? So that's why wisdom in scripture, it's never about formal education. It's about taking what you have and making it subservient to Christ. And that's what Calvin is saying. Are you sure about what you believe? It's not how much. The emphasis should be on the certainty of it. Where do we get that? Through the promises of God's word. Through the promises of God's word. 1 John 5, 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. That's what you need to know. I'm going to use a saying of the, the church fathers. Early on in the church, uh, some of the church fathers were not exactly um, experts in all their theology, but they were absolutely committed to Christ. And one person said some of the church fathers were not good for learning, but they were good for burning. Now that's crass. But what this person was saying, we don't look to them to answer all of our questions about theology, but when it comes to the, down to the bottom line, will this person follow Christ, then we look to them. Because they knew enough to know that this is willing to die for. We need to get to that kind of certainty. That's what Calvin is talking about. He says, the word is the foundation on which faith rests and is supported. Once it is removed, faith immediately topples if the word is withdrawn, faith ceases to exist. And what he's simply saying, no word of God, no faith. So we constantly feed our faith with the, with the word of God, this faith that we confess. And that comes to the word of God, but also comes to the assurance of God's spirit, that comforter that, that Christ gave to us. And what he said to us in the Gospel of John is, he's not going to teach you anything new. He's going to take what I taught you, and he's going to teach this to you. He's going to assure you of what is true. He's going to show you that it's real, even though it's unseen. He says in John 14, 26, the spirit will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. That's why the Holy Spirit in scripture is called the spirit of truth. He's also called the spirit of adoption because he testifies to us who we are and whose we are. He's also called the, the spirit of life and of grace and of glory and of, of holiness. All these beautiful titles to describe this comforter that God has given and poured out upon his church. That we would have this, this knowledge uh, grounded in certainty. First uh, John 4.16 Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. By this we know that we abide in him and he is in us because he has given us the spirit. In 1 John 3, 24, by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. 
It's interesting how Scripture is so concerned that we have this certainty that we know, but more than that, that we know that we know. It's interesting how the Gospel of Luke begins. Luke is very upfront about why he's writing. He says, I write this that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Or Peter, preaching in Acts 2, he says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you confessed. Or 2 Timothy 1.12, I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what he has been, what has been entrusted to me. It's the faith that we confess, it's the faith that we exercise. The faith we confess is this knowledge. That we confess this knowledge because of the one who revealed it to us by his Holy Spirit, and that is Christ. And the faith we exercise is in him. And we will talk more about that on Thursday night. Do we have any questions? I've lost all track of time. Oh, there's a clock. I just noticed that. <laughs> what do we have, 15 minutes? Is that correct? Or no, are we done? I'm sorry, I should know this. I'm, I'm doing the Paul Kent thing now. What time is this? <laughs> Take some questions? Okay. In the back, Mark. Um, this is a bit more from this morning. I don't know how to answer the whole question, Mark. I think it's a very good question. But I would say one of the things we could do is learn from the mistakes that others have made in the past, especially in our tradition, in the Reformed faith. And I would say we can never go wrong if we make the appeal to Christ and tell people to run to Christ. The way Calvin would say it, it's Christ clothed with, with his gospel, all of his gospel, to run to him for all that they need and to tell them that he is truly, he can truly be their all in all, that he is sufficient for what they need. I think that's, that's where we, we can never go wrong to any person is to encourage them to put their confidence in Christ. Where we get in trouble is we start laying conditions before it. And even as I'm saying tonight, that you have to know these 25 things before you can truly confess Christ and be a Christian. And that would be a disaster to do that. And if they're even listening to you, you can, you can assume that that need is there. And they, they feel their need for something more, something that works. What, what they have now is not working. And, and I think that's where we can be strong in our appeal to Christ. I think that's I think that's how I would answer it and, and I think not to get too gimmicky and, 
in sharing Christ. And there's so many times when, uh, when we are content with that. Um, I'm just thinking of a conversation I had with a young man. His name was John. He was sitting in the airplane next to me. And we were flying from London into Philadelphia. And I pulled out a book by David Wells on theology. And he said, oh, what's that you're reading? And I, I was thinking, I really want to read. I don't want to talk right now. And I said, well, it's on theology. And I thought that would take care of it. And he said, oh, that's brilliant. I've been thinking about that. And of course, the light bulb went off in the back of my head. What was that prayer you prayed for? You got on the phone. Lord, is there somebody you want to talk to? Open up the, okay, okay, I get it. I get it. Okay, I'm in. I'm in. I'm good. And uh, he said he had flown over to London because his father died and he had to clean up his stuff and he put all of his father's stuff in a pile in the, in, the, in the living room and he was just going out the door, he looked back and he looked at that pile of stuff and he said out loud, that's my father's life. And the reason he said that is his father was an atheist and he was a Marxist in the sense that he was a naturalist. And he said, the way I was raised, that's all that's left of my father, just those things. And he turned to me and he said, but that's not true, is it? And I said, no. And he looked at the window and said, those clouds, they're not there by accident, are they? And I said, no. I mean, this was the easiest evangelism I've ever had. <laughs> it's like, make it easy. Give me one word answers. No, no. And he said, what do you think is happening to me? And I said, I think your creator is speaking to you. Amen. And just talked about the gospel. What was so crazy is we're starting to land in Philadelphia, and here are these two grown men who were crying. And this lady next to me was like, what is going on? <laughs> that was so funny. Evangelism takes you lots of funny places. And I'm writing out the address of 10th Presbyterian Church because he was going to be right there. And I said, go and talk to this guy. Here's my address, my email. You can call me anytime. And I've been praying for him ever since. And all of us have, many of us have had conversations like that where the person just simply opened up and where we went to is to Christ. And, and I think that's where we can do no wrong. And I think as they answer questions, especially if it's a relationship where you're conversing with somebody, then we can lay out some of these things in terms of knowledge and the, the, the Apostles' Creed and laying out some of these things that are so vital to what we, we think that Christ was not merely a good teacher, we believe he is our redeemer, that he suffered the curse for us that you and I deserve, and that he has purchased us, that there's no condemnation now against us, and to, and to get into those things. But Mark, I don't know, I don't think I'm answering all your question, but that's, that's how I would begin. And I think that what's interesting to me is you have these evangelistic methods that come and go right? Something is popular for about 10 years. The thing that never gets old is simply to talk to people about Christ. Because the reason I say that at the end of the day, what are we asking people to do? We're saying run to Christ, flee to Christ, trust in Christ, rest in Christ, receive Christ, accept Christ. And he comes with all of his gospel. And that person opens up to him, receives more than they ever possibly could have imagined. All right, another question. Over there. Seeing from a person. Um, can a believer die in an assurance? Or does the Bible teach us that every believer experiences assurance at some point in life? If we had an 11th talk, it would be about assurance. Because it's, it's a good question. And we'll talk more about it. I know I keep saying that. 
every believer has some assurance, and that's what Calvin, I think, is talking about with certainty. Walter Marshall, uh, in his book, which is not the easiest book to read, so I don't know why I brought it up, but the gospel mystery of sanctification, he talks about this, that it's, it's absolutely essential that there's some assurance for a person to believe. They have to have some confidence that Christ is sufficient to carry me over the river Jordan and bring me into heaven. Now, does everybody have capital A assurance, maybe what you're talking about? No, there's many believers who die struggling. Very significant Christians, theologians, I'm thinking of one right now, who had uh, a friend called to his bedside because he was uh, in great dread about his salvation. And, and the reason why, as his brother pointed out, is he was putting faith in his faith. And he said, brother, when you're walking in the countryside and you come to some bridge you've never seen, and you want to cross that bridge to get over the side, what do you say to yourself? Do you say to yourself, now, do I have confidence in myself that I can walk across this bridge? He says, well, no, I don't do that. He says, what do you do? He says, well, I look at the bridge. And is the bridge strong? You know, are the timbers great? Is the construction solid? Does it look like it can carry me? He says, exactly. Look to Christ. He can carry you over this river death. Put your faith in him. And he was good. And so, but a lot of... You know, my father, before he died, it was interesting, he was visited with um, sins from his youth. And as a pastor, I learned he wasn't the only person. And we don't know whether that's satanic attack, but Christians suddenly remembering things they did 40, 50 years ago that are hounding them and making them wonder, am I really a Christian? Um, and it's a, it's a difficult thing to see as a pastor, but what do you do? You bring them back to the gospel itself. And this is why it's important, if I could just say a word to the pastors, why we are routinely in the pulpit, from the pulpit in our teaching, visiting heaven and hell, talking about life and death and sin and salvation in Christ so that when our people are approaching death, we're not having to teach these things. They fall back upon these things like cushions. We've been teaching these things to them for years. And we simply come to their bedside and we ask them very simple questions where they know the answers. Who's in control? Who are you confiding in at this moment? Who, where is your confidence? And simply remind them of the things that we've been teaching them again and again and again and to, and to rest in Christ. All right, the commercial for the pastors is over. Now it's back to everybody else. We have time for probably one, one question. Over the back.
No, it's, it's, a, it's a very good question, uh, but maybe I could approach it this way and we could talk afterwards. Um, so anger is perhaps the most complex emotion I think that we have, and there's lots of reasons why people are angry. But I also think that as a pastor, I felt that anger is one of the most useful emotions. It's a real window into somebody's heart. And it's, of course, it's revealing this really matters to her, and it, and it means that what you have is a pipeline straight down into, into her heart. You know, there's, there's some surface gold that actually reveals a vein that runs all the way down, and the, and the rich ore that goes all the way down. And this is, this is one of those moments where you're, even unbeknownst to her, she's showing you more than she means to show. And, and don't be intimidated by that anger. And in fact, if you're a good patient friend, you'll receive a lot of it. A friend of mine once said to me, you're so great for screaming at. And uh, I said, well, I'm so glad to serve you this way. <laughs> and it, she would take out stuff that she felt towards others, but it was so helpful. And I think that anger is, is really, really useful for us because it means it, it, it's, it's, it's running really hot and it's very, very personal. And of course it would be. How couldn't it be? And I think just to even ask questions about where this anger is coming from. Well, who do you think he is? that you think he would do this to you? Why does this matter so much? I mean, if, is he there? Is there life after death? Why would, this, why would these things matter? And I mean, you want to be delicate about those, those latter questions, but, but you're trying to get in there that way because that, that, that anger is, is, is sort of a billboard telling you this really matters to me and that's why I'm so, so upset with God. And so I would, I would go with that, and, and I don't know your friend, and so that's why I'd be very hesitant to, to guide you without knowing more. But to know that there's an open door there, if she's shown that to you so far, she's giving you that, that welcome. And, and, and I would say, yes, it's true that God can help you, but I would, I would really pray and ask God to give you wisdom and to think upon this and, and consult one or two wise people, talk to your pastor, and say, you can help me in this, how can I get in there? And what do I ask and what do I say? But that's a, that's a really great question. I know it's terrifying, but uh, brothers and sisters, we, we, we do the sloppy stuff. We get right in there where it's really, really messy. And that's where God does his best work. That's how it happened with us, more than we know. And so to get in there at this moment, to be the one friend that's, that's willing to have the courage to step up and do that, that's, she won't ever forget that. All right, so I think I close in prayer, and then, oh, there's another question. Is it an easy one? Oh, good, thank you. I agree. Okay, so do you have, how do we speak truth to people that are Just enough. Uh, <laughs> no, I think it takes tremendous wisdom. And, and again, 
Somebody in my church once called me, this is a, a previous church, and said, I've, I've been talking to this person a lot about the gospel. She's so curious and asking lots of questions. I want her to come and talk to you. She said, will you do that? And I said, no. She said, well, you're my pastor. I said, yeah, but you are her friend. She's, she's talking to you because she trusts you. She doesn't know me. I'm a stranger. And I said, God will help you through this, and I will do everything and anything and everything I can to help you and assist you. But she's talking to you. You're the one that can speak to her. And so that's where I'm not going to say trust your gut, but I'm going to say that you have to kind of feel this out, and you, and you probably have the best sense of, of, of how to do that. I think that we never want to aid and abet, especially pastors are tempted to do this, to preach somebody into heaven. We can't do that. But you can talk to her about the gospel for her sake and try to keep it there. Not, don't make any statements about this loved one who died. Don't make any pronouncements. None of us know who the elect are. But you could talk to her about what she said and maybe eventually bring back to those words, but I would just keep it in the positive, constructive, here's what the gospel is. Here's why we need Christ. This is why nothing else, no one else will do. None of us are worthy. Okay, I do think we're past time. Um, are we dismissed after this? Or Okay, so let's pray, shall we? Our gracious God and our Father, again, uh, time is not sufficient for us to explore all these things. But we can truly say that we can praise you and thank you for opening our hearts to the Lord Jesus Christ. You have not only um, enabled us to see our sin, but you've convinced us of the worthiness of Jesus Christ, and you have persuaded us by your Holy Spirit uh, to turn to him. We are so grateful that Christ is more than sufficient to deal with our sin. Not only has he dethroned the condemning power of sin through his death and his resurrection, but also because we are united to him in these things, because we have died with him and been raised with him, so also he has removed the condemning power of sin. It is grace that reigns in righteousness, and even though there are many days it does not feel that way, we know that in the end your grace gets a victory, and we thank you for it. But we pray too, Father, that we would not use this as an excuse, that we would persevere and be diligent in, our means, in the means of grace in applying ourselves to them and constantly keeping watch over our hearts, and that we would always be a people of repentance and faith. Help us in these things, even as we seek to follow you every day. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.